Good morning, and welcome once again to Mind Matters, our series of bridge talks and lectures. I'm Carol Meng. Today we'll continue to look into the work of Yu Yangshi. He's one of China's most famous historians and is known for his mastery of sources for China's history and philosophy. Professor Michael Puitz from Harvard University will tell us how we can understand the emergence of capitalism by reviewing some of Professor Yu's ideas. Professor Puitz was invited by New Asia College, the Department of History of Chinese University of Hong Kong, and the Hong Kong Museum of History to give us a talk entitled "Culture and History: Yu Yangshi." Weber and approaches to comparative history. So, what I will be speaking about today is one of the most hotly debated topics of literally the past two centuries, namely, how do we understand the emergence of capitalism, and particularly, how do we understand it from a global perspective? To introduce this, let me begin about two centuries ago when this debate began, which, as we will see, occurs in Europe for reasons that we'll be mentioning, and how people in Europe were conceptualizing the emergence of capitalism, which they did not think was a global phenomenon. I will then turn to arguably the single most influential figure. We'll be, then be moving into the early 20th century, a figure called Max Weber. Who set out one of the most powerful visions for how to think of the rise of capitalism, and then I will, of course, turn to Yu Yingshu,、um, the figure whose work has been so extraordinarily important, leading to this lecture series. And Yu Yingshu is responding to Max Weber, making a larger argument about. Where he was right, where he was wrong, and more importantly, how we need to rethink this question from a larger, larger global perspective. In his case, of course, most definitely including China. So, to set all of this up, let me again jump back 200 years ago to when this debate began. So, when the debate began, it's the 19th century now in Europe, when people at the time. Foolishly, I would say, in retrospect, thought that the emergence of not just capitalism, but what they like to call modernity, was an exclusively Western development. The full argument went along the following lines: the claim was, and it's amazing even now to think that humans could have thought such a thing, but this was the standard view: that all of humanity somehow, for the past. Several hundred thousand years lived in something that was called a traditional society. In those traditional societies, everyone's way of life was predefined for them. So you would be born into a pre-given social position. You would be born into a religious worldview. You would be born into a world of. Predefined roles, none of which you had any choice over, none of which you could change in any way, and where you were born therefore would determine your entire life. The claim was somehow all of humanity lived in such traditional societies until, in Europe, you had the breakthrough to what was called modernity, where the claim went: humans for the first time could change all that I just mentioned. Humans, for the first time, were able to, for themselves, decide what to believe, what religious ideas to support or not, how they wanted to live their lives, whether they were happy with the roles they were born into, or whether those roles should be changed, 
whether they were happy with the larger social order they were born into or whether that social order should be changed as well, and whether or not they were happy living the life economically and financially they were born into, meaning from this narrative, they would have the ability on their own to gain and accumulate wealth and therefore be able to have the financial power to make all of the changes I just mentioned. The claim again was that somehow this was a unique development in 19th century Europe. Now, as I can rest assured, I see in your eyes the horror that people would think such a thing. But let me explain immediately both why they did it in terms of an understandable way is also why they did it in an infuriating way. So the understandable part behind this narrative is European thinkers in the 19th century were, of course, looking back to 18th century. And in 18th century Europe, I won't say that the stereotypes of a traditional society were completely accurate, but nonetheless, generally speaking, if you're in the 19th century of Europe, you're looking back in the 18th century, the vision I gave is not completely right. I mean, it was a world where most of your life would be predefined at birth. You would be born into a social status. You would be born into a social rank. And there was very, very little social mobility. So generally speaking, you can see why there would be this view that they saw before them a traditional world. And certainly in 19th century Europe, they were seeing a world dramatically changing, literally on a decade by decade basis. That's the understandable part of where this narrative comes from. Now, there's also a horrible part of this narrative um, that I should mention as well, because along with the claim that they, the Europeans, had broken from this traditional world, they also were at that very moment engaged with an, in an extraordinary imperial expansion over the rest of the globe. And part of the tradition modernity narrative was a legitimation of that imperialism. The claim was the rest of the world is still mired in these traditional societies and we are liberating them by taking them over. And once we take them over, we will allow them, we will help them, guide them even into the modern world that we are now creating in Europe. So there's both an understandable side to this narrative as well as a horrifying side to this narrative. Now, before I get to a further discussion of it, let me give you a few examples of how this narrative operated in practice, because this will be important for how figures like Union Sure will be responding to it. So two of the dominant ways of building these modernity narratives, particularly involving things like, we will finally get to capitalism, involved the following sets of claims. One of these was the view that there was some kind of an inherent teleological development leading to modernity. And teleology here is a word specifically meaning a telos, a final goal of history. The view would be that modernity was that final goal and that all of what had been happening before in these traditional societies was moving toward this final moment of modernity. And for many thinkers, that final moment, at least in the economic world, involved capitalism. Capitalism, according to this view, would be an, an organization of the world that allowed individuals to accumulate wealth on their own initiative, as opposed to 
being determined by whether or not they happen to be born into a position of rank or not. So capitalism was one of those final moments. The other aspects of modernity are equally important. Part of the claim was science was an inherent part of modernity. So the view here was that in distant antiquity, people foolishly believed in things like magic. Then eventually they evolved to a higher stage where they had a belief in things like world religions, which weren't based upon magic, but were still based upon religious beliefs. And then the next stage would be a secularized society based upon a scientific understanding of the world. So. Economically, the final result is capitalism. In terms of things like an understanding of the world, you shift from religion to a secularized science. And yet another piece of it was the political world. The claim was in distant antiquity, people just accepted forms of authority, like, for example, hereditary monarchy, because they couldn't question that. And in a modern society, humans on their own can determine how to organize the political world. So all of these were seen as teleological developments leading up to this moment of modernity. And I might add, even the major critics of the day in Europe largely accepted this narrative. So to give an obvious example, Karl Marx um, would say, well, no, the teleology is not capitalism. <laughs> the teleology is a communist world to come. And yet, at least in the Marxist narrative, the only way you can achieve communism was to go through capitalism. So in his view, there were these inherent sets of stages you must go through in order to reach that final telos. And Marx just said, there's yet another one still to come. So in this narrative, the final teleological development would be modernity in some manner, shape, or form, and again, in most of the thinkers, capitalism was the economic moment of that realization for the modern world. There's one other side of this that I would also like to mention, because it will be important for Eugenie's critique, which would say, along with this teleological development toward modernity, there was another specific aspect of this in terms of capitalism, which held that it's not just that it's a progressive growth from the traditional world, that capitalism should be thought of as sort of wiping away the traditional world. And this was a view particularly important among a number of liberal economists who made the following argument, that in primitive society, um, actually, the beginnings of a market simply emerged when people began to realize that if they had an extra surplus of something, say a little bit extra of extra grain, they could give that to someone who needed it. That person who needed it could in return barter something that I need. So if I needed some you know, metal, I could get some metal back for grain I would be giving. And so a barter exchange system was seen as an early natural development in which movements of goods would occur naturally. And the traditional world, according to this view, was a world that stopped this, right? The traditional world would be one in which you had powerful authorities emerging politically, religiously, that would predetermine what could or could not be exchanged. And 
hence leading to, as we mentioned before, this traditional world where everything was being controlled by traditional authorities. And capitalism would then be seen as the moment when those traditional authorities would be wiped out and individuals again could begin bartering. Only now it wouldn't just be bartering with someone they happen to be a neighbor with. Now it would be bartering with anyone over huge distances because we had the proper creation of things like money. And so the implication would be capitalism is what happens when you wipe away these traditional authorities and allow people to freely do what they otherwise would be doing economically, which is simply transferring goods to each other. And so in this narrative, modernity isn't simply a high development of the modern world, it actually is a kind of wiping away of traditional authority, allowing a proper capitalist world to develop. So it is not only a higher development, it is in a certain sense a kind of natural development once we get rid of all of these traditional authorities. You're listening to Mind Matters, where we just had Professor Michael Puet from Harvard University telling us some background of the emergence of capitalism. Next, he will explore Yu Yingxi and Weber's ideas on the reasons why the ideology emerged in the world, but China. With China, as we have seen, Weber will argue, powerful from a comparative perspective because of this incredibly early rationalization of the political process. Not quite reaching for Weber a purely modern form of rationality, but incredibly close, and again, beginning 2,000 years ago. Also, putting a little bit more meat to something I mentioned very much in passing, he thinks in China, too, you have this incredibly rationalized, again, not to the point of a, of a purely modern worldview, but incredibly high philosophical understanding of the world that gets very close. And his big example here is Confucianism. And Weber will argue Confucianism is this amazing system of thinking that like the bureaucratic system, and he sees correctly the two as, as being interrelated at certain points in history, is not quite modern, but unbelievably close, and again, developing incredibly early by world historical standards. And what interests him in particular about Confucianism is Faber will say, oh my gosh, here you have a system that is based upon self-cultivation, so individuals cultivate themselves, they are expected to be incredibly disciplined and hardworking in that cultivation process. They are expected to be highly educated because education is seen as inherently part of that cultivation process. So only through education can we as individuals become what we are capable of becoming. However, although I use the term individuals, part of the power for Weber is the goal isn't to be simply a self-cultivated individual, because if you are so being educated, you become less selfish and you become more committed from a Confucian point of view toward 
creating a social order where people can flourish. And of course, much of your work is expected to be devoted toward creating that social world to the point where, as Faber notes quite correctly, a significant number of self-proclaimed Confucians will join the bureaucracy and actively try to work to create a workable social order to the point where, and Weber just found this phenomenal, by the 12th century, you actually have bureaucratic states which are defined significantly only by taking a civil service exam to gain placement in the bureaucracy, meaning that China incredibly early creates, in part because of its Confucian understandings of the world, it creates a political system that's governed not by an hereditary elite, which again was true in Europe through well, at least the, the 19th century and arguably well after that too. And here you get in China, a society actually run by an educated elite as opposed to an hereditary elite. I mean, for Weber, this is just stunning from an historical perspective. So a Confucian philosophy aimed at self-cultivation, education, building a social order with a resulting political system based upon meritocracy and the creation of an educated elite trained through these Confucian ideas to govern. Again, for Faber, this is extraordinary. But it had another element that for Weber was kind of negative, but, but you'll see momentarily why I'm using that, that odd tone of voice. So Weber also claimed, now, Ewing sure is going to strongly disagree with this, but, but this is Weber's view. Weber will also claim that Confucianism, for all of what I just mentioned, creating this sense that we should become educated to work on behalf of creating a better social world, Weber also claimed that Confucianism also ultimately limited, limited the degree to which one would do this because it would teach one that the world is already harmonious. We as humans, when we're building a proper social order, if we're doing it successfully, it just means we are creating on earth a perfect harmony that matches the cosmic harmony. And if we do this well, it means we will be living happily within a harmonious cosmos, which means Yes, it's all about education and self-cultivation and creating a social order, but it's not going that next step of saying, and then we as humans should see the world as simply natural resources that we should use and manipulate for our benefit. Because the sense was, no, the world is, is a harmonious cosmic entity that we should learn to live within. So according to Weber, Confucianism still has a remnant of an earlier magical worldview where the cosmos was seen as an inherently wonderful, magical entity that we shouldn't simply see as resources for our utilization. Now, I mentioned there's a negative side to this for Weber because Weber, for reasons that are now I'm sure obvious, would say, well, a purely modern rational worldview would see the world as nothing but resources for our use and manipulation. That's all it is. And a magical worldview would limit the degree to which, of course, we would see 
a tree is simply something we can cut down for, for wood or a mountain is something we can, we can simply you know, take apart for coal. If it's a magical worldview, well, that would limit our ability by definition to so manipulate it. So for Weber, this is a ultimately less rational perspective because Confucianism, according to him, still kept enough of the old magical worldview that it limited the degree to which we could manipulate that natural world. Now, it's negative because it therefore prevented the Chinese, even through Confucianism, for all of the good things I've mentioned, from breaking into a purely modern world. Here we get to something that's going to be very important for Vapor, and we'll see it very important in a very intriguing way for you sure as well when he critiques this. Vapor is an incredibly conflicted, ambivalent figure, to put it mildly. <laughs> so I just mentioned all of what I just said about a magical worldview that he thinks is part of Confucianism ultimately holding back China from creating a purely rational system that would simply manipulate the world for human use. Yes, for him, that's a limitation. It is very clear when you read Faber that there's a certain side to him that thinks, isn't this? <laughs> I think there's a certain side to Faber that he kind of wishes he was a imperial bureaucrats <laughs> living in a world that he thought was harmonious that he thought was in, he, that he was completely interconnected with that he did not think of in purely rational means he kind of loves the confucian worldview as he describes it not purely rational but there's clearly something, kind of romantic side to, to Weber of thinking, wouldn't it be amazing to be able to live in such a world at one level so rational, so meritocratic, such a successful bureaucratic system, and yet still believing you're part of this harmonious cosmos that you're not simply thinking of as this disenchanted material stuff that we can manipulate for our own use. So Weber ultimately thinks China is held back by Confucianism. It takes humanity in China to this incredibly rational level, not quite breaking through. And yet at some level, Weber thinks, what a great place to have lived in. If only I could have been born there. Now, the reason I emphasize all of this is let's then turn to what Weber thinks about Europe. And it's a very counterintuitive reading, especially given all that we have seen from the earlier 19th century European thinkers who consistently put modernity and capitalism as either the highest age of development or with Marx just you know, <laughs> higher than everything that's come before, even if there's something still to come beyond that. So this ambivalence of this greatness of China is intriguing in itself, and all the more so when we get to why capitalism for Weber emerges, again, he thought, uniquely in, in Europe. So 
Weber is a complicated thinker, again, as we've already begun to see, and he thinks there are many reasons why capitalism develops. So he will talk about all the various economic reasons in terms of what's shifting over the previous few centuries. He will talk about the political sets of shifts that make this possible. But by far the most influential argument he will give is when he turns to the cultural side. And this is put together in a book, um, which has become not only his most influential book, but one of the most, and correctly so, widely read books on the emergence of capitalism, called The Protestant Spirit. It is about how Protestantism, of all things, will help to lead to the emergence of capitalism. Now, as with many influential books, the ideas behind this have become part of a common currency more often than have his actual arguments have been read. And so let me take you through a few of the arguments because they're very counterintuitive. And yet we'll see when we get to Union Sure, it's the counterintuitive sides that most excites him and most intrigue him. So let's turn to Weber's argument about the cultural dimensions that lead to the emergence of capitalism. So again, to underline a few of the key points for Weber, there's nothing inherent about the rise of capitalism. And so you're looking for what sets of things happened, even unrelated to what we know will happen later, he thinks, with the rise of capitalism, but nonetheless helped propel things toward this path. And since we know where we're going with Faber's narrative, like we have to get to a world that is disenchanted, secularized, humans thinking of the world simply as material resources for their own manipulation, um, and yet the humans like doing so with this aggressive work ethic. Um, where in the world does such a thing come from? Which again, for Weber, is a serious question because it's not natural. There's nothing natural about the fact that we think this way. And when I say not natural, boy, does he mean it. <laughs> so let me now get to his argument. So when he talks about Protestantism, it's important to note immediately, he's really not talking about Protestantism. He's actually talking about one movement called Calvinism. And Calvinism was not a hugely popular movement, but that's okay for Weber's argument. Weber's argument is simply that once these ideas start setting in in Europe, they are taken over by even people who are not actively Calvinists. So these ideas become a common currency in Europe. So let me take you through some of, at least as Weber interprets them, Calvinist theology. Very counterintuitive. So, in Calvinist theology, whether or not you will spend all of eternity in heaven or hell is predestined by God, a higher deity. God, before you were born, has already decided if you will spend all of eternity in hell or all of eternity in heaven. There is nothing you can do to affect that. Meaning, if you think, okay, if I live my life really well, helping everyone around me, and I'm a moral person, that will help me get to heaven, which is certainly a view that many Christians held. 
Calvin explicitly opposes this. According to Calvin, no, that's hubris. If I think I, out of my own behavior, can determine where I will be for all of eternity, I think I control something that only God can determine. So I have no control over it. Note immediately for Weber the difference of this with Confucianism. In Confucianism, it's all about the degree to which I educate myself, cultivate myself, become educated in meeting for him, able to work on behalf of the social world. If I become a bureaucrat, if I can take the civil service exam, become a successful bureaucrat working on behalf of the world, that is what it means to be a successful Confucian. It's all about what I do in this world. According to Calvinism, no. I mean, you can do all of that, we'll see, but that won't do anything to help you get to heaven. That was Professor Michael Pruitt from Harvard University. I'm Carol Meng, and I invite you to join me next Sunday morning on Mind Matters.